Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm joined by two distinguished Shakespearean scholars, Stanley Wells and Paul Edmondson, and their new book is called All the Sonnets of Shakespeare. Now you may think that Shakespeare's sonnets have been published before, but this book's a little different. Paul, Stanley, can you tell me why? The title, in a way, tells it all. It's all the sonnets of Shakespeare, by which we mean not merely the 154 sonnets published in 1609, which people usually think of as Shakespeare's sonnets, but Shakespeare used sonnet form quite often in his plays, most famously in the first meeting of Romeo and Juliet, and also in the prologue to that play. And so what we've done is two original things, One is to arrange the sonnets in conjectural order of composition, insofar as that can be determined. And the other is to intersperse those, again in chronological order, with the extracts from the plays. So in other words, there are now 182 sonnets of Shakespeare. To start with, just talking about these ones that appear in the plays, what would the effect on the audience have been? Would you expect an audience to hear a sonnet? when it appeared in a play, and to kind of go, ah, that's a sonnet, that's something different. I think they were arresting to the ear. When we like to say that audiences of the time went to hear a play as much as to see one, you would have quickly spotted a quatrain, A, B, A, B, and then another one, C, D, C, D, and you'd have thought, aha. On the whole, Sam, what we see when we look at the sonnets in the plays is they change and develop the dramatic texture of the moment. A character suddenly starts speaking differently. He or she stands out. Or, uh, on at least two occasions, Shakespeare uses the sonnet form to put over a letter in a play. So somebody suddenly starts reading a sonnet on stage in the form of a letter that another character sent. Yes, it's also fair to say that sometimes it is actually declared to be a sonnet. For example, in Love's Labour's Lost, the lords speak sonnets to the women that they are wooing and say their sonnets. I think also sometimes the sonnet is a way of introverting the personality, a way of letting you into the quiet, silent thoughts of the person. I'm thinking particularly of Cressida in Trials and Cressida, who has a sort of sonnet meditation which sets off her speech from the rest of the dialogue, taking you into, into her inmost thoughts. There. That, but sometimes it's much more extroverted, as it is, for example, conspicuously in the prologues or in the epilogue to Henry V. Another really beautiful example of a character suddenly bursting into a sonnet is Beatrice in Much Do About Nothing. It's the only time in the play, the entire play, she speaks poetry. And she steps forward and it's a sonnet the truncated sonnet and it's a soliloquy like so it's, it's introverted but at the same time it's extroverted because we hear her speaking as, as she doesn't ever again. Well I was going to say that there seems to be a sort of doubleness here because in one sense you know when Shakespeare uses sonnets it is as you say it's a way of exploring inwardness of conflicted states of mind of a sort of mini soliloquy but in the other the sonnet is a is a sort of public form it's a formal performance and 
you know, you have instances in here where you, you say in Shakespeare's plays or in some of the plays co-written by Shakespeare, they're talking about the sonnet as a sort of, you know, it's something that one of the characters is trying to compose as a sort of formal means of declaring love. And I mean, did it have that dual valence? Yes, it, it did. It does in the plays. Sonnets could be very private poems and they could also be very public poems. They are sometimes in dedicatory sonnets to long, long narrative poems, for example. There's that wonderful scene, Stanley, that you write about in the book from Edward III. Oh, yes. There's a, we've drawn attention to a very little known play, which has only recently been included in the Shakespeare canon, the play of Edward III, which is only partly written by Shakespeare, but I've no doubt whatever that some of the scenes are written by Shakespeare. And in that, it's an early play, Shakespeare actually shows somebody trying to write a sonnet. The king wants to write a wooing sonnet. He's trying to seduce a woman. He's trying to seduce a countess who is married, as he also is married. So it's very much a scene of illicit love. And he gets his secretary to help him to write the sonnet. They don't get very far, but they make a start on it. There are even two silent sonnets in Shakespeare, by which I mean Beatrice and Benedict, by the end of the play, have both written sonnets to each other, but we never hear them. We just see them, read them quietly on stage and react to them to each other. Yes, they appear as props, don't they? Yes. <laughs> well, what would a sonnet have meant to you know, an Elizabethan audience? I mean, what? because, as you say in the introduction, the idea of the sonnet, the sort of form, you know, songs and sonnets, you know, the word wasn't in use all that much earlier. Well, yes, it, it was. It was in use since 1560, the publication of Tottle's songs and sonnets. Edmund Spencer wrote a lot of sonnets, but there was a colossal vogue for sonnets from 1591 to 1597, when 19 sequences of sonnets were published. The first of those was published posthumously. It's a Philip Sidney's Astrophil and Stella, a series of over 100 sonnets. That's the longest of those sequences. So for a sudden period between 1591 and 1597, the sonnet was a very popular form. And it's during that period that Shakespeare was writing most of his sonnets. We believe very firmly, however, we think it's very important that Shakespeare was not writing a sonnet sequence. He was writing sonnets. Sometimes he was writing a, a group or a little collection of sonnets, but he was not writing a sonnet sequence in the way that Sir Philip Sidney or Michael Drayton, for example, were, where they were writing a series of very closely interconnected poems, all about one particular beloved, sometimes a partly fictional beloved, often with a classical name, Fidessa or Clarissa or that sort of thing. So Shakespeare was writing sonnets during the period when the vogue for sonnets was its highest. But of course, his own sonnets, the non-dramatic sonnets, weren't published during that period, although a lot of them were written then. They were not published until 1609. I also would like to add, though, that although Shakespeare's writing the bulk of the sonnets when the form is extremely popular, he goes on writing them for at least 10 years after the form has ceased to be as popular, which is quite revealing because that tells us perhaps something more about what the sonnet form itself meant to Shakespeare. Yes, he missed his publishing moment in a sense, didn't he? Well, we think increasingly, Sam, that he didn't ever want to see them published. These were private poems um, that meant too much to him to 
be seen as a sequence. Well, he's not writing a sequence. He's no. writing them for other reasons. We draw attention to the fact that two of them, at least, are actually letters. That the, these extend our range of Shakespearean letters. Two of them are poems addressed to an individual. So, for example, Sonnet 77 accompanies the gift of an almanac. And uh, that itself is um, a new insight. It's not, we hasten to add an original insight because it's the insight of a student called Adam Barker from the Shakespeare Institute who, who just published an article on it as our book was about to go to press. And for years, it's just been said, oh, Sonnet 77 is about a notebook. Actually, it seems to be a letter which accompanies specifically an almanac, which in the period had blank pages, which encouraged you to make your own notes within them. And I think the other one is Sonnet 25, which talks about a written embassage. Yes, yes. So that seems to be a sonnet which accompanies another piece of writing. So it's a sort of sonnet letter, as it were. You know, in 1598, the literary chronicler Francis Meard referred to Shakespeare's sonnets among his private friends. Well, these two are very, are very conspicuously among his private friends, aren't they? Letters. Also, um, just to say, it's Sonnet 26, not Sonnet 25. Okay. So sometimes he was clearly writing private sonnets for particular individuals, not necessarily for public consumption. The earliest reference to them, Sam, also signals privacy. So in 1598, there's a published account of them, mentioning them as Shakespeare's sugared sonnets among his private friends. So that, you know, the earliest mention of these poems have a, a kind of secrecy around them. So it's sort of talking manuscript circulation only. I mean, you talk a little bit about the, how would you call it, prefatory material or the frontispieces and dedications. That 1609 quarter of the sonnets suggests, as you say, they weren't published sort of with his consent or with his knowledge even. How does that come out? What are the things that show us that somebody else, as it were? First of all, it's in the actual title page, which is very unusual. It isn't sonnets by Shakespeare. It's Shakespeare's sonnets never before imprinted. It's a sort of third person wording of it there. Not sonnets that I'm, I, Shakespeare, am offering you, but sonnets that the publisher is offering to the public. Uh, and also the other main thing is that the dedication to Mr. W.H., a very enigmatic dedication, only to somebody identified only by his initials, is not signed by the author, as dedications would normally be, but is signed with the initials of the publisher, Thomas Thorpe. So all this makes it very much a third-person publication. For years, it's been assumed that W.H., means or points to somebody in, as it were, Shakespeare's circle of friends or family or, or colleagues. Uh, there was an article published a few years ago which suggested it was the initials of a publisher, which you know bears out further what Stanley's just been saying in terms of if this was a publishing coup, then the publisher and printer have managed to lay their hands on, oh my goodness, a stash of poems by you know who it is, William Shakespeare. The other thing I was going to mention is just the, the length of time that it takes for the publication yeah. to come out. If this was going to be a successful publication by the author, making it available, then it would have come out no later than 1595, 1596. It's even surprising that publishers were publishing sonnets as late as 1609, but presumably it was because Shakespeare was very famous by that time, and they expected it would be a bestseller, which, as far as we know, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. It, it, doesn't, it wasn't reprinted. The, the next time it gets into print is in a garbled edition in 1640, whereas the, the Shakespeare's 
poet was Venus and Adonis and the Rape of Lucrece, were his most popular works as far as printing and publishing goes. Venus and Adonis went through many editions. I think is it 13 in, in his lifetime. So the sonnets are very different in that way. But two of them had appeared in print in a little book called The Passionate Pilgrim in 1599, isn't it? The Passionate Pilgrim. Two sonnets there, presumably that's what we call a pirated publication. In other words, the publisher somehow got hold of two of the sonnets, perhaps from those private friends who were not perhaps as loyal to Shakespeare as they might have been, and handed them over to the publisher. They're very intimate poems, two very sexy sonnets, those. And the publisher publishes them in a little volume with only 20 poems altogether, which also includes three extracts from Love's Labour's Lost, the, the sonnet form there, and a number of other sonnets, some of them identifiably by other identifiable authors, others anonymous ones, which may or may not be Shakespeare. And we've rather taken our courage into both hands there and included some of those because we think that perhaps they are by Shakespeare after all. They're on the theme of Venus and Adonis, the, the great poem which Shakespeare himself had published under his own name in 1593. And they're very charming, light, sexy poems about the love between Venus, the immortal Venus and the very mortal Adonis. Very charming little poems they are. They may or may not be about Shakespeare, but we've put, we thought it was worth putting them in because nobody can prove they aren't. Even. No. Well, you've had a generous policy on inclusion generally, haven't you? Well, we have. And one of those um, Venus and Adonis sonnets is damaged. There's a line missing. So we've even supplied a missing line. <laughs> <laughs> if you look at the footnote, they're on the relevant page. <laughs> we wrote this. <laughs> now, you were talking about this sonnet vogue. I mean, presumably it was sort of kicked off by Philip Sidney you know, influential in his own time. What was it that sort of ended it? I mean, did the Elizabethan public just go kind of, right, that's enough sonnets, as we might now go, that's enough medical memoirs or whatever? I, I think it's partly that, and it's partly that they got less good as they went along. The Sidney's are great, great poems. Some of the others are very ungreat poems. And so perhaps people just got a bit bored with writing and publishing them. And the publishers really felt there was no more. Some did go on being written, but... It's very conspicuously that clutch. Also to say that the other sonnet sequences, and remember Shakespeare's is not a sequence, yeah. really throw into relief just how startling and original his sonnets are. Yeah. So the, those public, that Thomas Thorpe, who was printing them in 1609, he knew, he knew the reading public had never read sonnets like these before. Yeah. In terms of the form... You know, at the time, as you write in your introduction, there were sort of two main for There's the Spenserian sonnet and there's this, what we now call the Shakespearean sonnet. But Shakespeare didn't invent that, did he? Three quatrains and a, and a couple. Yeah, it goes back to the 15th century, to Petrarch and, and, and Dante. No, Shakespeare didn't invent it. He, he obviously loved it. But the Shakespearean sonnet form. Yeah. He didn't invent that either, did he? No, that, no. That no, was that. No. I think that, I think I think the form he's he's favouring that he most likes using. It was around in the fifteen fifties yes. in English. Yeah. yeah. Was anyone writing Petrarchan sonnets at this time? I've always wanted one. One sort of looks at them a bit in vain. Uh, yes, there are other sonnets, sonnet forms during this period. I mean, the challenge, of course, Sam, is that English is not a rhyming language in the way that Italian is. So the choice of form is partly dictated by how the language rhymes and how it 
you know, runs over or not line by line. It's still an extremely disciplined form to take up for any poet to try and write a sonnet. Uh, and of course, what's so dazzling about Shakespeare's is he, he makes the form his own. He shows himself to be the supreme master of it and in some ways remains so. It's interesting that historically it comes and goes, doesn't it? It goes out of fashion during the whole of the 18th century until, until the end of the 18th century when Wordsworth starts writing sonnets, for example, and Keats writes some wonderful sonnets, of course. But it hasn't always been popular in the history of English literature by any means. Yeah. Now, you talk about Shakespeare making them his own, and you make a strong case that these show a particular sort of inwardness but you're very resistant to the idea of biographical reading, that even though there's a lot of punning on will, you know, it's, it's clear that the author of these sonnets is will, you're resistant to biography. Why is that? And how do you separate those two ideas? That, that's, a, that's a very interesting question, because in fact, we're not resistant to biographical readings, but I think we are resistant to the biographical, let's say, laziness, which has turned to the traditional narrative of Fair Youth and Dark Lady, which has been applied to these poems since the 18th century. That is the kind of biographical reading we are resistant to, because what you find there is that the story which was brought to the sonnets has found its way into Shakespearean biographies since the 18th century, and biographers have gone looking for the fair youth and the dark lady because of an act of criticism of the sonnets. Do you see? Yes, and it was one critic who lit on this idea of a dark lady. Well, Edmund Malone was the first one to start talking about the fair youth and that the dark lady occurs later on. But we're not resistant at all, in fact, quite the reverse, to the idea that Shakespeare really means what he's writing about in these poems, which makes them autobiographical. It makes them personal... Um, reflections, many of them. It means that the people to whom they're addressed, all of whom shall remain nameless because we don't know, could be real people in Shakespeare's life. Um, And it means that what we've got on our hands and our approach has rather brought this out more than in recent times, is a sort of spiritual autobiography, a spiritual memoir or an emotional memoir by William Shakespeare. But it is important to stress the variety of the poems. Some are quite light-hearted poems. Uh, there's even a very early one when he when he puns on the name of Anne Hathaway, poem which we believe uh, this is, and we're not the first to suggest it. It was first suggested. It wasn't. It wasn't suggested though until 1971, which is clearly a wooing sonnet, not a particularly good poem. So the the, the diversity of the poems in the collection is something I think we'd both like very much to stress. They range from light-hearted poems, from rather formal poems, elegant poems in the form of letters, through to very, very profoundly inward meditations on the poet's own sexuality, on his life, his relationship with one or two people, which uh, including ones that talk about the tension between between his love simultaneously for a woman and for a male person. Those are the bisexual sorrows of which we are convinced are Shakespeare's explorations of his own personal identity and personal problem. And when you open Shakespeare's sonnets at random, you quite often find a poem that you don't like. Because why? Because it's full of self-loathing. You don't understand it. It's too difficult. And, and a lot of these poems are extremely difficult and a lot of them are painful to read. And this isn't someone who's writing sonnets on the whole 
they're, they're written for different on different occasions, of course, diverse occasions and for diverse people and diverse thoughts. But on the whole, these are these are quite private feeling poems with a truth which is so achingly compelling that it's difficult to deny that he wasn't really writing from a very personal, meaningful perspective. And yet at the same time, of course, self-respecting Shakespeare scholars for decades now have said, oh, they're just literary exercises. He's a master dramatist. You know, he's just inventing them. It's just, you know, just another form of drama. Uh-uh, drama doesn't work like that. And then if we take that question and turn it around, we'll say, well, look at the plays. We find Shakespeare's personality across the plays as well in various ways, shapes and forms. I was only going to say John Carey in his recent Little History of Poetry takes a view that Shakespeare was a dramatist and that these may be sort of imaginary speeches. I think that's an evasion, an evasion of, of, of the, the personality, the personal creativeness of the poems. And do you find something dramatically different in the sonnets than you do in Shakespeare's writing for performance? You do. You know, Sam, it's a different tone of voice. One of the things the book does, which is is original as well, is that we highlight a few sonnets. I think maybe, I can't remember how many we do this with, but we draw attention when, when it reminds us of a character in a play speaking. And there aren't that many of them, but we just, you know, we just want to remind the reader that this is the same mind, the same writer, who, you know, who wrote and invented the voice of Hamlet, for example, or Antony and Cleopatra, etc., Sonnet 57 could be Kate speaking to Petruccio, for example. That is not in any way to say that these are dramatic fictions. It just means that they come from the same mind, the same artistry. But on the whole, his tone of voice in the sonnets, I'd say, is very different from the tone of voice in the dramas. Wouldn't you, Stanley? Yes, sometimes and sometimes not. It's so varied. And this is one of the things we really must stress, the enormous variety. You know, there's the lyricism of Shall I Compare, the the popular poem, Shall I Compare to Summer's Day, for example. Uh, Some of them are, 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 are pop poems almost. But some of the highly introspective meditations. I think one of the things that... I would like to stress is that Shakespeare himself was probably very proud of these. He obviously collected them, he kept them. Uh, They were printed, we believe, from a transcript made by we don't know who, Uh, but Shakespeare must have had the, the poems in a notebook in his house somewhere, probably in a particular order. He'd kept them right from the very beginning, possibly from the schoolboy exercises. We, we conjecture that of, of the two last printed poems, 153 and 154, which are both translations from a, a Latin version of a Greek epigram. And uh, why should Shakespeare have been translating from a like, Greek epigram at any point in his career, except when he was in, enduring education at the grammar school? It seems to me, especially as one of them, as was, again has been fairly recently recognised, is clearly a revision of the other. So we print them in the reverse order from which they first appear. He, he writes a translation of this epigram, and then he does it better. And I conjecture that's because his schoolmaster said, no, look, Will, this won't quite do. Well, I'm glad you said that because in the order they're printed, I didn't realise you'd done them in reverse order because I think, I think the first one's better than the second. And you know... Oh, well. <laughs> well, it, it kind of should be because that's the, that's the improvement. Yes. So, 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 so 154, which is the last printed in 1609, is printed first in our collection. I thought my, my instincts were quite off. Now, you know, a lot of your labour in this book, in arranging them and ordering them, 
is in dating. I mean, these are easy to date, are they? How did you go about it? How did you figure it out? So, Sam, this is not our work. We are riding on the shoulders of giants when we put them in chronological order. We're the first ones to do that with them, but we're using the stylometric analyses of people who've worked on the Oxford Shakespeare, especially MacDonald P. Jackson, who is a New Zealand-based Shakespeare scholar and the leading expert in the world in terms of how you analyze Shakespeare's use of vocabulary at various points in his career and what that then shows us about dating the plays and the poems. And for listeners, what sort of thing would that be? What, I mean, what so, is an example of the stylometrics you use? So it'd be, for example, the kinds of vocabulary that Shakespeare is using, which are more common at certain points in his career than at others. And you can then start to build clusters of occurrences of those words across the canon and then start to ask yourself, well, does this suggest that these are written at a similar time period? It's that kind of analysis. And it might be also um, short phrases, for example, as well as individual words. And for example, there's sometimes when, when Shakespeare's using a word only once or twice, um, which makes the work in which it appears especially obvious or especially interesting and unusual. Yeah. Now, you also highlight though you say you know it's not a sequence that the published sonnets the, the yeah. 154 you do say there are links there are little couples and triples and well the first the first 17 as printed are all addressed clearly to a young man encouraging him to marry and to beget a child so that is what we call a mini sequence he clearly himself is very devoted to that young man we might reasonably say he's in love with the man, even though he's at the same time urging him to marry. Overall, there are 14 mini sequences within the 1609 collection, covering 100 sonnets in all. And there are 19 pairs of sonnets, which I find fascinating because it suggests that Shakespeare wrote a poem and then thought, I'll write a sequel to that. Sometimes they're syntactically related by a key word such as thus or but or then. So you set something up in the first poem, then you qualify it. And then sometimes they're more like mini sequences when it's obviously on the same theme. For example, sonnets 50 and 51 are clearly written when he's riding a horse. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, it's not, it's, you know, poets compose when they're gardening, when they're out driving, when they're in the supermarket queue. And, you know, for Shakespeare commuting between Stratford-upon-Avon and London, not only sonnets, I think, in his head, but, you know, whole speeches from the plays. He was thinking about how to work a certain scene out as he had that three-day commute uh, to, to make between Stratford and London. So, uh, and, you know, there's something rhythmic about the horse's hooves and iambic pentameter and all of that. So it's, it's quite a compelling thought that Shakespeare did a lot of his composing for sonnets and plays on while he was riding his horse. In terms of putting them in chronological order, at least, you know, the, the 154 sonnets. How much does that disrupt and qualify the order in which they appeared in the 1609 quarto? Is it a totally different shape or did the 1609 get it roughly right? No, 1609 is entirely different to the chronological outcome. So if I just briefly sketch this for the listeners, the earliest composed sonnets are the latest ones published in the 1609 collection. So sonnets 127 to the end seem to be the earliest composed. So they all go towards the beginning of the chronology. And then you have sonnets 
87 to 103, 61 to 77, and then 1 to 60. So the earliest ones are not in any way the earliest ones he wrote. And then the ones towards the middle of the 1609 collection, 104 to 126, seem to be the latest among the sonnets. So it's, it's all change for the 1609 quarto. Yes, and in relation to that, I would say that printing them along with the extracts from the plays increases one's sense of that for a reader who knows the plays. It's interesting to come across, say, an extract from As You Like It or Landers Lines As You Like It, uh, which are, are, are a form of a partial sonnet, along with sonnets written more or less around about that time. And that's a lovely moment when Orlando's running through the Forest of Arden and says, you know, hang there my verse in witness of my love. And he's writing poems, some of which we suppose are sonnets, to Rosalind. But you know, um, the other thing is that in rearranging them into chronological order, we've taken away the numbers from the 1609 quarto, which has been a very freeing thing to do. So instead of seeing 12, when I do count the clock that tells the time, we use the catchword title, the first few words of each first line as a title to each poem in the book. So it's when I do count the clock. And then all of the sonnets are immediately identifiable at the foot of the page, numerically with their 1609 position, and two indexes of first lines and numbers, a numerical index for 1609, help you easily to find sonnet 53 from 1609. And very helpfully, you have, you have some prose translations. We have both the short summaries on the page with the sonnet, summaries of just often a single sentence. Yeah. The, the back of the book, we have detailed full paraphrases, prose paraphrases of every sonnet, which we did partly because we acknowledge that some of these poems are very difficult poems. And we think that by providing these prose paraphrases, we uh, p permit readers who find them difficult to have a sort of crib to them. And I'm, they go, turn to the back of the book and find what it really says. It's going to gloss that sound. Because I remember the day when Stanley turned and looked at me and said, you know, these are such difficult poems. And I said, Stanley, if you and I think that, what, are, what about our readers? And, so that, and, then, and then we decided that actually paraphrases, because as we were, of course, we were looking at other editions of the sonnets to find out how words had been glossed and so on. They never tell you what the sonnet actually means or what the line means. You know, they give you just inf enough information, an OED citation, a comparable use in another work from the period. They don't tell you what it actually means, which is why we wrote literal paraphrases for every single poem in the book, which the readers are, are welcome to disagree with and kick against. Well, I was going to say, I mean, I'm always haunted by William Empson claiming that he found somewhere north of a thousand possible interpretations of bare ruined choirs. You know, you had to choose one. I mean, with the very ambiguous ones. You're doing the paraphrase, but not in the notes. So our edition does both. And, you know, it's quite fun. When Gregory Doran, the artistic director of the RSC, was looking at the book in order possibly to endorse it, which he did very nicely, he said, I love the thumbnail sketches at the foot of the page because I've just given you a couple of examples of them. Because you read them out of context, like, oh, that's interesting. So um, I'm so sick and tired of things as they are that I'm looking forward to death, except that in dying, I would leave my loved one alone. That's Sonnet 66. Her loving lips said, I hate, but then she mercifully added, not you, sonnet 145. Having children is a stronger way of defying time than the writing of poetry, sonnet 16. <laughs> Sometimes I lose the ability to express my love, but realise it is there in the silence of what I've already written, sonnet 23. Every single sonnet has a little thumbnail sketch, and Greg said it was lovely because you could flick through those and think, oh, I fancy one of those just now. <laughs> <laughs> Like a, like a menu on a box of chocolates. <laughs>
that were you to wolf all of the chocolates in order, you know, starting from your earliest and going right through in order of composition, I not just dip into your book, but read it from beginning to end. What would it tell you about the development? You know, what do you feel you can see in the development of the way Shakespeare used the form? What he wanted to do with it and how he learned to take advantage of its opportunities? Well, I think he was a master of the form from very early on. Perhaps one does get a sense of his being able to use it with more inwardness later on. Do you, do you think that's true, Paul? I think the, the earliest ones printed are, as it were, easier to understand and follow immediately. And I think they become progressively more difficult and dense as poems. So in the 1609 terms, this would be sonnets 104 to 126. And among those are the most difficult in the collection. And they're a little bit like soliloquies from the plays, aren't they, sometimes? I mean, sometimes soliloquies from the plays, particularly some of the later plays, like, well, Hamlet, but also King Lear, for example, are also very difficult. And I think there is an analogy there. These are soliloquies. They're all soliloquies in a uh, way, aren't they? Well, they are in a way. And a comparable moment in a play, as it were, a play sonnet, is um, a really difficult one, a speech spoken by Helen in All's Well That Ends Well, Act One, Scene One. And it's actually a very difficult speech and it's, it's set apart from the rest of the scene. It's the very end of Act One, Scene One in All's Well, and it's a sonnet. And that comes quite late, that's 1600 to 1609. So that, that fits in terms of the becoming progressively denser. You say that the, the sonnets stopped appearing in the plays so much though as time went on. Was that just because he got prosier? I think it's because his verse style becomes looser and freer as he goes on. So it's natural he's using fewer stipulated forms, as it were, in the later work. I mean, the, the early, for example, Richard II is full of couplets. The early plays generally use rhetorical devices much more clearly on the surface of the plays. In later plays like Othello or King Lear or the very final plays, the style is much freer. Coriolanus is a particularly strong example here. The verse lines don't just have the 10 syllables that you get in some of the earlier plays. Sometimes a verse line will have 12 or 13 syllables. Sometimes I remember editing Coriolanus and finding it very difficult sometimes to tell the difference between prose and verse in that play. So I, I think this, does, this is reflected in the sonnets that the style becomes more introverted and freer. And two of the later examples, uh, interestingly, are both put into the mouth of deities, Diana in Pericles and Jupiter in Cymbeline. So that suggests that he's thinking about it as a very heightened yeah, way yeah. of speaking, uh, an unusual epiphanic moment in, the, in both those plays. And how late is the last one? I mean, did he go on writing sonnets, as far as we know, to the end of his life? The last one we include in the volume is the epilogue to All is True, Henry VIII, which we confess is probably by John Fletcher, because he wrote that part of the play. But it was a collaboration with Shakespeare, which suggests that they may have checked each other's work, for example. So that one gets in honourably as being by you know, the fruit of a close collaboration between Shakespeare and somebody else. Um, and it's reasonably straightforward, that particular sonnet. I yes, it is. Yeah. Hand on my heart, I don't think that is actually by Shakespeare. No, I think it's by Fletcher, primarily. And that's very late. I mean, that's the, we believe that to be 1613, 1613 when the globe, it was being performed when the globe burned down in 1613. So there is a use of a sonnet, but approved by Shakespeare, one has to say, but probably written by Fletcher. I think there's a line in it that sounds very un-Shakespearean or 
Yeah. Do you want to want an example, Sam? Did you say? Well, I could I could, I could read a few lines from yeah. that epilogue if you want me to. Well, maybe if it's not my Shakespeare, we should we should let that one let that one pass. Um, Moving swiftly on. <laughs> I was going to say, did the, did the two of you find yourself? I mean, because obviously you've got quite a broad range of what you were prepared to put in. You know, in terms of sonnet fragments and truncated sonnets and sonnet-like objects. Did you find yourselves at any point fiercely disagreeing about anything, or were you quite harmonious co-editors? We didn't disagree, but there were a few moments, weren't there, Stanley, when, when I came to see you in your office and said, you know, what about this? Why haven't we got this in? And we looked at it with thought, mm, it's not really a sonnet, uh, because either it, the number of lines was wrong or the rhyme scheme wasn't quite right. We, yeah, we thought very hard. I mean, I've got... I've got a, an edition, my own edition of the Oxford Shakespeare, which I read through more than once, looking for sonnets. Uh, and sometimes at the head of the play, it says no sonnets. E.g. Coriolanus. Uh, yeah. And sometimes <laughs> it, it has lots of scribbles in it uh, and say, well, not quite a sonnet or marking out verse passages which use the units of the sonnet form. You see, the sonnet uses quatrains and sestets uh, and couplets it was quite difficult to decide whether a passage which might have been made up of two quatrains, for example, whether we were regarded... No, two, two quatrains wouldn't get in. The, sledge, no. <laughs> the sledgehammer came down, the gavel yeah, was, you know, sounded. Yeah, yeah. Because he's writing quatrains and couplets all over the place. Yeah, yeah. And, and dialogue, especially in the early plays, let's say until the mid-1590s, often takes off. I mean, Love's Labour's Lost is, is beautiful in the um, suddenness of quatrains and couplets appearing but within them you can see whether there's a sonnet and we didn't we struggle over Midsummer Night's we Dream we did over oh, Midsummer Night's Dream particularly we wanted to include the some more passages from Pyramus and Thisbe but they weren't strictly speaking so. <laughs> as it were separated off enough they were you know 20 odd lines of quatrains and couplets and you couldn't quite say oh it's definitely a sonnet so uh, at the same time that scene is almost a fantasy on the sonnet form it couldn't have been written without the sonnet. For. Peter Quince gets in with his prologue, um, which is yeah. a truncated sonnet. Yes, but you, you said you put that in because it answers the proper sonnet earlier on, doesn't it? Yes, that's right, yeah. Um, what I'm trying to think of some other... Oh, and the, the, I remember the day when Stanley said, you know, if we're including sestets as truncated sonnets, then we have to include the whole of Venus and Adonis. Because <laughs> 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 it's all written in sestets. <laughs> It's a publishing project for another day. People may argue, and we don't mind if they do argue a bit about our definitions, but quite pleased to have discussion about it all. And the 1609, of course, includes one sonnet, which is six rhyming couplets, sonnet 126, yeah, um, but... which, which was our, as it were, alibi yeah. for including Cressida's 14-lined sonnet, but in rhyming couplets. So that was a way of showing that Shakespeare prints, prints one, two, six, which is 12 lines in rhyming couplets. Cressida speaks 14 lines in rhyming couplets. She gets in, she's a sonnet. There is a sort of honourable subsequent tradition. I don't know how much you think Shakespeare has influenced it in people writing sonnets that aren't quite sonnets. So I don't think sort of Robert Lowell's Notebook and History or even John Berryman's Dream Songs. You know, there's a whole series of sequences of not quite sonnets, but sort of sonnets. That's like the John Donne collection, Stanley. Well, yeah, you see, John Donne's collection, 1633, Songs and Sonnets, wonderful poems, but there's no poem in that at all. This is, a, strictly speaking, in the, in the conventional sonnet form, which, which shows how, free, how freely, freely the word could be used. Well, it obviously was, you know, as you say, songs and sonnets, you know, that, that, that was the first use in English, whatever it was, 1540, I think you said, or 1530. Was the sonnet 
as a word, did it mean essentially a song? Well, it, it literally means something sounded, doesn't it? Sonetto, something which is sounded from the Italian. It is used sometimes for a song, though. I think perhaps in, in The Two Gentlemen. Yes, as reference yeah, to The Two Gentlemen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes, of course, sometimes characters talk about writing sonnets and then don't actually do so, or we don't see them. I mentioned that with Beatrice and Benny. It also happens in, in The Two Gentlemen of Verona, Sathurio. Yes, yes, advice, yeah, yeah. yeah, he's going to write a sonnet. I didn't quite get round to it. Mm. It's nice that you've got round anyway to collecting such sonnets as were written. I know if I could end with a couplet, I would, but I can't. Paul Edmondson and Stanley Wells, thank you very much indeed for talking to us. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, we very much hope that you will subscribe on your podcast provider of choice and or rate and review us. Well, especially if you liked it. If you hated it, don't, don't feel you have to review it. And equally, if there's something that you wanted to ask us about, something you think we could do better or something you enjoyed, please do send us your feedback to podcast at spectator.co.uk. Thanks again for listening and please join us for our next episode.